Today I welcome Jay Rainey, Head of School at MICBS in St. Louis. In this episode, I discuss the role of happiness in education, stereotypes and reputation management, and being an upstander in the community. When you took the helm at MICDS, you said you wanted to make it the happiest school in St. Louis. How did this come about and how do you measure happiness? A qualifier just right off the bat. That was something I said. I was interviewed for a local paper. I was new to town. Our communications office, our marketing office set up the conversation. And actually, it drew from a conversation I had had with a parent at an opening parent event. This parent came up to me and says, what do you want your legacy to be at the school? And I just thought it was such a funny question. I was brand new. Legacy is a backward looking question, right? Like, and I was all forward looking, like what's your vision or what's your plan or what, you know, what are your values, but what's your legacy? In hindsight, it was a great question, but I was sort of, and I just thought, you know, I want this to be the happiest school in St. Louis. And so what I regret about that formulation of it is, There are a lot of really good independent schools in St. Louis. St. Louis is one of the strongest independent school markets in the United States, at least in terms of how long independent schools have been around and Catholic parochial schools as well. St. Louis itself is sort of challenged economically. And, you know, it's actually similar in a way to Baltimore. That's another city with great independent schools, but some social and political challenges. But in any case, it's a great place to be ahead of school. It's a great place to be a student in an independent school. So what worries me is that happiest school thing probably came off as competitive. And that's not really what I meant. I really meant it more as a happiest school we can be. And the reason I focused on that is, you know, we live in this time of, I think, sweeping pessimism um, and cynicism, regret. I feel like this moment we're living through independent of the pandemic, but just especially, I think, in the United States, but this is happening, I think, globally, just continuing to come to terms with the considerable legacies of European colonialism. And I mean, America is the product of European colonialism and at the entire North and South American continents are, um, as are other regions of the world. And capitalism, its benefits, but also um, its detriments um, and, and so forth. In a very broad way, as we take stock in these things, There is so much that is communicated that is fundamentally negative. I think we should never lose sight of the fact that we are our best selves when we're looking forward in a spirit of optimism and hope and inspiration and to be careful not to fall into a way of being in the world that is sort of thoroughly pessimistic. I think that's really important. I think it's especially important when you're working with children. You're forming, you're helping to form their habits of mind, their ways of being in the world. And then separately, I would say, uh, several years ago at my former school, the first school that I was ahead of, I remember at an opening faculty meeting, poking the faculty a little bit and provoking them a little bit. But I said, EQ is greater than IQ. You know, and I said, look, especially, you know, teachers at the upper school level who really are experts in their fields, you know, whatever it might be. The intellectual formation of young people is indispensable to the work we do. I don't undermine that. I come out of that tradition. I value it. But I did want to provoke them, maybe even provoke myself, to remind them that increasingly what schools offer that cannot be found elsewhere, it's no longer knowledge, right? We are no longer the repository of knowledge, right? That's vastly distributed, easily available. Khan Academy is amazing, right? I mean, and on and on it goes. We don't corner the market on that anymore. But what we do have 
is children coming to school every day to be in community with one another. So thinking about how to educate them emotionally and socially is at least as important as educating them academically and intellectually, if for no other reason than that the first begets the second. Only when a child feels emotionally and socially safe and thriving and happy do they then learn best. And I think increasingly that's, of course, understood in school work. Social-emotional learning has been such a focus now for many years, but that's where it comes from. So the statement about happiness, but happiness is, a, you know, in the Middle East, you know, happiness is something that you know, is judged, you know, they go into it. It's not just about academic achievements anymore. And actually, you know, you probably ask every parent on the planet and they'll say, well, as long as my child is happy and confident, and they're almost the two things that we look with, with all my four children, you know, because they are absolutely different. And, you know, some of them might need more academic rigor because that's just the way they are. That's where they thrive. Yet my others will be, you know, it's dyslexic and needs more support, it's more creative. And then my son wants to be an actor. And it's, it doesn't matter. My job as a parent and when I send them to school, they need to thrive. So I think actually talking about being happiness, I don't think it's a competitive thing. I don't think it's anything. I think it's a really important thing. I don't think we talk about it enough because that's the human side. With a happy, confident child, you've taught them. That's the grounding. All the other things will flourish. The academic interest, because suddenly I can do this and you can do it. So no, I love the fact you talk about happiness. And I don't think you should hide from it because people will always pick things apart. But what does a parent want? You talk about optimism. I'm like you. I sit on the optimism tree every single time. And, you know, when we do talks at schools, we talk about about positivity and about the reason, you know, again, social media and, and how that can be good and bad. The thing is, communities thrive on positivity. I don't know one person that likes to be disliked. It's not a natural thing. So we can definitely lend ourselves towards happiness. I think it's great. I mean, how do you think a school can transcend all those differences in background and opinions? You know, when the rest of the climate of America is, you know, apparently quite divisive. It's an extraordinary challenge. I think it's essential to, to my answering that question, my thinking about leadership of a school through this time. I think it's essential to respect the scale of what we're living through, that there absolutely are inequitable experiences between different populations of people in the United States, around the world. This has been generally a persistent factor of the human experience. The challenge we face in America is that our entire foundation aspires to a vision of democracy and human equality and uplift and so forth. And we have a very hard time in our country coming to terms, again, with those legacies of colonialism and capitalism, specifically slavery in our country. It's often noted to people in the United States that if you go to Berlin, you cannot escape the memorial, you know, and the recognition of the extraordinary crime of the Holocaust, um, or if you go to South Africa and so forth. But here it is much harder for us to have these conversations. It is necessary at a school that we have these conversations. What I will say is that so much of the pressure that is on schools right now is to have those conversations in terms of a vocabulary that is essentially new. And I don't dismiss that vocabulary. So when I think about some of these words are words we've now used for a long time, but diversity and inclusivity and equity and uh, social justice is, is increasingly discussed. The word belonging often comes in there. Belonging is a word I quite like. But many of these terms come from, they come out of the academy, they come out of higher ed, specific university faculties, or they come out of our political discourse and they're very politically aimed. 
So I want to approach this conversation and this um, experience of understanding each other as thoroughly as we can, despite our differences. I always want to approach it in very fundamental ways. So I actually sent an email to a parent at the school not long ago who was asking questions along these lines. And I found myself writing these words. I said, you know, an older word than anti-racism is love and an older word or a habit than, you know, checking your privilege is just humility. An older practice than allyship is compassion. An older virtue than upstanding is courage. And so I found myself saying these things and I found that, okay, that's an essential part of my vision of leadership, which is not to say that words like those don't play a role. I mean, Kendi's work on anti-racism, it sells off the shelves. It's fundamentally part of the conversation in the United States right now and perhaps around the world. But working in a school and working with children and working in community, I think it's so essential to talk about love of one another, to talk about compassion and care and courage and kindness. These words that have not been infected by a more kind of um, abstract intellectual discourse or by a more emotional political discourse, but that are just fundamental human virtues. I think that's where we have to begin. I'm constantly emphasizing those kinds of things in my leadership. And I see that as the baseline for then having open and honest conversations about the difficult legacies. I hope you're enjoying the Inspiring Schools podcast. We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. And part of having all those values and habits that underpin what you believe and you instill in all your teachers and all your pupils, and you talked about compassion, you talked about community. And one of the things that you did, you know, part of it is you got to show, not tell. Don't say you do these things. Show me you do these things. And one of the things you did, which is almost unheard of for an independent school, is that you low tuition fees in response to coronavirus. There, right there, is compassion, you know, a bit of humility, some understanding, and it's community. Tell me how this decision was made and why. It was definitely a decision made in the moment. If you simply looked at stock market performance as a kind of proxy at that time, the stock market plummeted, I think it was in March. And that was one indicator, and there were many other economic indicators. What was of interest to us, and I say us, it was the senior administrative team, but principally our CFO, Beth Miller, and our board leadership, we were increasingly hearing from families that would not normally be financial aid, and I don't love the term financial aid, I worry that it sounds like charity and sort of stigmatized. But in any case, families that would require some help with tuition began to move beyond the typical kinds of families that would apply for tuition assistance, meaning families in lower wage earning occupations without access to intergenerational wealth. We began to hear from doctors who could no longer perform elective surgeries, small business owners, right? People in those kinds of occupations again, traditionally make a high income and are very highly represented in schools like ours. And we began to, specifically our director of financial aid began to get calls saying, this has hit us out of the blue. We have three children at the school. We're worried about tuition next year and so forth. So there were those indicators. And then, yes, it's as you said, I've often thought about that decision 
in comparison to tuition remission, the tuition remission benefit for employees, you know, the amount of tuition that's forgiven for employees to send their children to a school. And I've known for a very long time that the perfect economic policy for tuition remission is no policy. Economically, you should just say to your teachers, if you have need, you should apply for assistance the way that any family would. And if you qualify, you will get the assistance that you need. That's a perfect economic policy, and it's a terrible psychological or morale type of policy. The perfect morale policy is that the students can go for free because the teachers rather put so much blood, sweat, and tears into their work, right? So somewhere in the middle is where you balance that economic interest with the interest in morale. I think there's a similar thing going on here where really the great majority of families that we extended that $2,000 tuition credit to did not really need it. They managed through, and of course, in hindsight, I mentioned small businesses, I mentioned physicians, they recovered relatively quickly. They were not long-term economic effects. The real long-term economic effects, of course, are hitting the population of people that historically do need tuition assistance now are going to need even more of it. In hindsight, I don't know whether we would do it again because I don't know that it really was necessary. But in that moment, like so many of the decisions that we had to make during the pandemic, in the moment, it felt like absolutely the right decision. A show of compassion, going ahead and granting it before waiting to see how the economy would recover. You know, kind of, we're all in this together. This is something we're doing for you. I don't regret it at all. Very few schools did it. I'm not sure it was necessary. I do think it signaled to a lot of people that we were doing what we could to indicate solidarity. And that's the difficulty. You have to make decisions in the moment. That's what leadership is called for. And it's interesting to see which way schools went. Some reacted very quickly, those with great endowments, you know, particularly UK as well. It was a no-brainer. It was like, look, we have deep pockets, the community mean everything. We'll just offer something right off the bat. And I thought that was, whilst it was good, again, it was premature because we didn't have any facts. It was a reaction rather than probably in hindsight, it's look, you know, we understand that some of you are going to suffer more than others. Let's just see how this pans out. If you need help right now, then let us know. We want a school standing also at the end of it. And some schools didn't have the deep pockets to do it. And they were like, look, we can't really afford to because we need to be here to provide an education for kids next year. That's leadership. You know, you make decisions and you've got to look back and learn from history and go, OK, if this happened again, how would we shape it differently? But it's great that you went down that move that just kind of sits into your to your moral compass as to it felt like the right thing to do. And that's a human decision. I want to talk about upstander because you've talked about how everyone should be an upstander, speaking up in the face of unkindness or cruelty. How have your own experiences solidified this belief? I mentioned earlier, I think I said an older word than, you know, upstanding is, is courage. And so again, upstander is a kind of a term of art that has arisen in, I guess it's of relatively recent origin, but it's so clear what it means. It's a word I'm very comfortable with. And as you've noted, I actually, yes, in speaking to our middle school, I think it was pre-pandemic, I gave a, a talk to them and talked about how important it is to have that courage and to stand up. And in my own background, I grew up in a small town in Virginia. There was the literally the side of the railroad tracks where people lived in poverty, and there was the side where people didn't live in poverty. And almost everyone on the side of the railroad tracks where you lived in poverty was black. And I was aware of that almost intrinsically throughout my upbringing. And, you know, when I was talking to the students about my own background and missed opportunities in my childhood to be an upstander, there are many. I'm confident, and there are many that I can't remember, I'm sure, but 
I'm sure that there were many, many times where I was in the presence of someone who made a racially insensitive comment or a blatantly racist comment or joke, and I didn't say anything or do anything. You know, there's this, uh, I don't know if you've heard of the country musician, Jason Isbell. He's sort of critically acclaimed. I like his music a lot, but he released a, a song a few years ago called White Man's World. And there's this line in it where he's taking himself to task. And he says, essentially, I'm tired of being the white man who pretends not to hear another white man's joke, right? And that line really resonated with me because certainly I was that person in many cases in my upbringing. There were other times where I stood up, but typically by that point, I was an adult. I had kind of a confidence to me. So when I was thinking about them and like being in their shoes, the way I was, what I've spent a lot of time examining is the fact that by the time I was old enough, growing up in a Southern small town, to learn about things like Jim Crow legislation, separate drinking fountains and movie theater seats and so forth, it made sense to me already. That really is something I have to work hard to understand, that by the time I was old enough to learn about those things, my mind had already figured out erroneously that sorting people by race made sense, that there was some sort of reason to do this. And I didn't even examine that. I had to really unlearn that over the course of my education and upbringing. It's hard to unlearn it. I actually spent the first six years of my life in South Africa. My three brothers were all born in South Africa. So, you know, I've got friends and I'm back there quite often. But, you know, how do you unlearn that it's the environment, the, the place, the people, the old fashioned values? And it's not right. I almost find it quite awkward sometimes. I almost overthink things now. Now, then it becomes unnatural. And then I'm, that shouldn't be a place to be anyway. And sometimes I'd rather try and say the right thing and get it wrong and, you know, and someone point it out. But your point's about being upset. I like that term. I don't think we are enough. It must be very difficult to teach that, particularly as a teenager who is developing and everything's about peer pressure. It's very difficult to stand on your own. How do you go about that critical piece of childhood? So I think you're exactly right. Some children, human beings naturally at a very young age are going to have a capacity for courage despite social pressure that others don't. <laughs> Look at someone like Greta Thunberg, right? And where does that come from, right? You can depend on that universally because children are children. Reflecting on my own childhood, I regret that I didn't have greater strength when I was, say, 11 or 12 years old. I think what our job to do as schools is to inculcate our programs, our student experience with a fundamental respect for every other person, notwithstanding any differences that you perceive about them. This could be their weight or their height. It could be their car that they come to school in or don't come to school in or their race, obviously, their ancestral background, whatever it might be, their gender. The more that we put in place an, really an overwhelming culture, a kind of egalitarian culture, I think you referenced this. The walk the walk is much more important here than the talk the talk, right? It is so much more important that teachers model this and act this out. It just becomes so clear, you know, say in, just in a classroom, that that teacher loves every single child in his care or her care equally. And it's just understood. And the students see that modeled and they understand this is how you have to be in the world. So then I think, how does upstanding happen? It happens in part because of that courage that some students are going to find easier to tap than others. But it happens much more naturally if the overwhelming culture, again, is egalitarian, meaning that it's countercultural to say something 
insensitive. It would be uncool, basically. It would be so inappropriate that it would be uh, just such a foreign thing for you to say in this really healthy social environment. I think that's what has to happen. I used to teach English. Walt Whitman, Leaves of Grass is a good example of this generally. I mean, that's sort of his master work. But the way he talks about people, no matter their differences, no matter to be a man walking with a limp, it could be a, a slave on an auction block. He observed that, wrote about that. Young men and women in love, young men and men in love, whatever he observed, he talked about all of those characters so passionately, so empathetically, compassionately, right? And I've often thought, you know, if we could just get everyone to see other people the way Walt Whitman saw other people, always their dignity first. I think that's most of the battle toward overcoming the legacy inequities that we endure in the world. Jay, it's amazing how time flies. I know we could talk on this and many other subjects for a long, long time. It's been illuminating. It's been brilliant. I think your views and your articulation of the values that you believe in education and what you do, is it really shines through and I've thoroughly enjoyed it. So thanks ever so much for finding the time. You can connect with me on Twitter, Instagram and via LinkedIn. Remember, keep inspiring schools. We need more future school thinking now.